Hello, and welcome to the Three Links Oddcast, your podcast for all things having to do with Odd Fellowship. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome to the Three Links Oddcast. I'm one of your hosts, Toby Hansen. I'm another of your hosts, Mike Dominiak. I'm your other other host, Ainsley Heilick, and we are brought to you today by our sponsor, the Heart and Hand Institute. Yes, the Heart and Hand Institute is excited to roll out its latest release, The Emblems of Odd Fellowship by John Michael Greer, back in print since it has been long out of print since 1998. So you could head on over to Heart and Hand Institute. Oh, my God. <laughs> 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 I totally, totally botched the name of that. Okay. So you could head on over to heart and hand Institute.com and you could order your copy straight from there, or you could head on over to Amazon and type in emblems of odd fellowship and order it there. Yeah. It's a fantastic book. Uh, I had no idea just how important the stone easel was to odd fellowship before I read it. And now I know all about it. Of course, I read the original one 25 years ago, so I did have a little bit of foreknowledge of it, but I have to say those illustrations are beautiful. Did we bring Jean-Jacques David back from the dead to do those? I wish we did. However, we got the discount version of the, the wish version of Jean-Jacques David, the, the Ainsley Heilick. And so, uh, yeah, so if you ever wondered what, some of these symbols would have looked like had they been in regular use production, uh, like some of the retired ones. Um, I feel like, uh, I think of the retired symbols, my favorite's the cornucopia. It's got yeah. like a nice triumphant hand holding it up. I didn't want it to be too Thanksgiving-ish, so I had to present it differently. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very happy with the illustrations. Well, I can attest that they are absolutely beautiful. It is a wonderful item uh, for any of your Odd Fellow friends. Um, make sure everybody has a copy of Emblems of Odd Fellowship. It's just that good. So for this episode of the Three Links Oddcast, we are happy to be back in production. We took a couple months off because I had to move to a new house, and I mostly moved in here now enough that I could string a couple tin cans together and record a podcast. And uh, Brother Mike, you brought uh, an interesting topic to us that we received from one of our listeners, and it had to do with what happens when a lodge sells its property and kind of uh, goes off into the ether. You know, and it's not even just when a lodge closes down. It's also when lodges are doing major renovations or want to move from one property to another. Perhaps they have a building that's too large. They want to go to a smaller one. In all of these cases, there should be procedures in place for how to handle the permanent assets of the order. While the lodge may own something, while it's an operating lodge, it doesn't have complete discretion on how to spend uh, its capital assets, would be the best way to put it. Yeah, so crack open your code book, everyone. I know you have one sitting there at your desk right now. And take a look through it because there's some important sections in the code that talk about this. First of all, all funds are trust funds and you have to have, I believe it's the two thirds majority for lodge expenditures. Now, 
there are a few things that are simple majority and jurisdictional rules may in some cases supplement or override uh, those set out in the Sovereign Grand Lodge code. But the important part about that is if your lodge owns a building, if your lodge has money in its bank accounts, those are trust funds of the lodge and cannot be spent without proper authorization. Usually proper authorization is a vote of the lodge. So uh, someone makes a motion, it gets seconded. Noble Grand restates the motion, there's discussion, there's a vote. When the lodge votes, that's enough to authorize the expenditure. And so the warrant gets written out, gets signed by the secretary, Noble Grand. Warrant goes to the treasurer, treasurer pays the warrant. There are two signatures on the check, check gets mailed off, everything is recorded in the secretary's minute book, the treasurer's cash book, uh, and it's noted down uh, whether that is something that should go on the annual report later, and everyone is happy because bookkeeping in Odd Fellowship is always perfect, and all annual reports are always turned into the Grand Secretary on time. <laughs> on this one, I would go with, with uh, people want to look it up, the specific Chapter 5, Section 10, Lodge Property and Assets. And I'll go ahead and read this word for word for you. Good. The Grand Lodge must grant approval prior to the Lodge disposing of property and assets. In the event the Lodge ceases to exist, all property and assets revert to the Grand Lodge. That does not mean paying your electric bill. But that does mean if you are dipping into your investments, your principal of your investments, or if you are selling real estate. Yes, and that that is another important aspect to this. Day-to-day -day operation of the lodge, um, usually a two-thirds vote in favor of the expenditure is plenty, everybody's happy. But if there's anything that has to do with long-term assets of the lodge, that is investments that a lodge may have, stocks, bonds, um, any loans that they have made out to other entities. Yes, it happens. We had a lodge in Washington. I am not going to say which one because I really like this lodge, but um, their cemetery committee made a loan to the lodge. The lodge defaulted on it. Therefore, the cemetery committee should have been transferred as the owners of the building. It was a big legal mess. Eventually, with the help of the Grand Lodge, that was sorted out. But any kind of long-term financial things, assets like buildings, other rental properties, cemeteries, yes, we still have lodges that own cemeteries, um, any lodges that are part of a temple board or temple corporation, uh, or I believe in Canada, they call it a board of union, those are long-term things those are what your lodge trustees are involved in managing. Trustees do not do the day-to-day -day checkbook, let's pay the electric bill, let's pay the phone bill, uh, let's pay to have the fire extinguishers inspected. Trustees don't do that. Trustees look after the long-term property of the lodge, which is your investments, your buildings, you um, anything like that that goes beyond the length of the officer's terms. Okay, so there are the special rules that you cited. Grand Lodges have to approve 
those things. If you're going to sell a building, if you're going to buy a building, if you're going to do anything that involves the long-term property and sustainability of the lodge, you have to do it in conjunction with your grand lodge. Yeah, I'll give an example. Uh, here in Charleston at Canal Lodge, we had damage to the corner of the building in the foundation. We needed to do a foundation repair. To do that, we needed to take money from investments. We got the permission of the Grand Lodge first because they need to decide whether or not they think that's a valuable use of resources. They might decide it's using too much money and you're better off just selling the building or or just let it go until it falls down. Who knows? But they get to have that kind of a say. And we did that, just like when another lodge consolidated into our lodge. After a time, we decided to sell the excess building. The, the terms of the sale, first, being allowed to sell it had to go through the Grand Lodge. And then the terms of the agreement had to be approved by the Grand Lodge. We couldn't sell it for a dollar and get away with it. Not that we'd want to. But we had to have the agreement of the sale also be approved. So we just had a situation in Illinois that kind of is probably one that a lot of jurisdictions have encountered where when you read what the code says uh, that if a lodge closes, all assets go to the Grand Lodge. So it could be misconstrued that, well, we're just selling our building and we're just going to move the, the body of the lodge to a different place in town and rent. So they went ahead and started that whole process and sold the building um, before the Grand Lodge was able to vote on it and go through their steps. And it created a little bit of back and forth and confusion and, um, you know, hurt feelings. And it, it was all okay in the end, of course, but there is definitely, you know, it, people need to always check with Grand Lodge before making a big decision that changes some forever with their property. Yeah, I would say when in doubt, contact your grandmaster and ask. Um, if, if you need to take money out of your investments to re you know repair the roof, you should ask first. At least let them know you're doing it. You shouldn't be transferring money out of your investments, out of your principal, um, without the Grand Lodge having at least some idea of why and concurring on that or, or telling you that they don't need to concur. But it's, it's always good to check. I do want to add one other thing before we go too much into the weeds on this topic. <laughs> Just a reminder to all of you, associate members pretty much have the same rights as any other member, except when it comes to disposing of assets of the lodge or consolidating. Only full members of that lodge have those rights. And that's to prevent people joining, becoming associates, and then pilfering a lodge or something like that. We would never do that as odd fellows, but the rule is still there just to keep things uh, safe. So remember that if you are having a vote to do something like that, if you have associates members, they should uh, abstain from the vote. It doesn't mean they can't count towards a quorum of the meeting. They just can't be included in the vote totals. So if you had two associates in the meeting and three regular members, you could vote, but two out of three would have to vote in favor if you want to get complicated. Now, here's a good example of that. Uh, when I was deputy grandmaster, there was a consolidation of two lodges. 
and our grandmaster at the time, the esteemed Kelly Hughes, uh, who is currently Grand Secretary of Florida, he was a member of one of the lodges in the consolidation. And so he called me up one day. He says, hey, Toby, um, these two lodges are consolidating. Because I'm a member of one of the lodges, I do not want to be involved in the Grand Lodge part of the consolidation process because I don't want there to be the appearance of any impropriety in the process. Would you handle this as deputy grandmaster? And I said, of course, I'd be happy to. And I did, and the consolidation went very smoothly because Kelly, being a very knowledgeable odd fellow, knew the right way to proceed with it. Now, putting my past grandmaster hat on, during my term, I had a couple of interesting things that happened. Uh, one of them was a lodge in a rural part of the state, and they had been working on the process of possibly selling their building, putting a newer building that was more accessible up in their cemetery, and holding lodge meetings there. So they had gotten some sort of tacit approval to look into and start gathering information in the process, but not actually doing it. And so at a certain point, something came up and I found out about something that was going on. And so I had to write them a nice letter saying, hey, just so you know, uh, this does have to go through a Grand Lodge approval process before you can make any decisions on long-term capital property. So you can't just sell your Lodge Hall because you want to. Uh, you can sell your Lodge Hall if you've made a compelling case to the Grand Lodge. And the reason for that is what is called a reversionary right. Here's another problem I had as grandmaster. <clears throat> I got wind of a lodge that was thinking of giving up their charter. And so I said, oh, I don't want that. I want to go in and help them out. So I just eh, randomly happened to show up at their meeting that night. And they were very upset about it because I showed up and I said, okay, if you are thinking of turning in your charter, you have to follow a process. You have to notify all the members of the lodge, not just the four or five who show up regularly, but you, you have to follow the process outlined in the code, mailing the members, making sure you let them know the date and time that this issue is going to be discussed and voted on, making sure that everyone gets their notices, making sure that everyone has the opportunity to speak on the matter, and then you cannot spend any of that money that you have. And they were very upset about that because to them, they say, we raise the money here in this community. We want to give all of the money away to local charities before we turn in the charter to the Grand Lodge. And I said, you cannot do that because Grand Lodge has a reversionary right. The property that you have, including your assets, is all property of the Grand Lodge in the event that you give up your charter. So you cannot just turn in your charter and give all the money away first. That's how you get in trouble because there's a reversionary right. The Grand Lodge has that right. And the reason is because at the Grand Lodge level, we retain all of the assets of that lodge for a period of time so that if someone from the lodge comes back and reclaims that charter, they get the assets that go with it. Now, it depends from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. If I remember right, the code says the Grand Lodge has to hold on to the property for three years. 
Correct. But here in Washington, our digest gives lodges five years. So a lodge can't just deplete all of their resources and then turn over five dollars, five ritual books, a set of collars, and a charter to the Grand Lodge. Because if someone from that lodge were to come back and say, hey, I have enough people to reclaim the charter, they would then get the property of that lodge back from the Grand Lodge. And that has happened during my tenure as an odd fellow, where a lodge turned in its charter, they said, we can't do it anymore. And then a couple of the diehards found new people and said, hey, we would like to get the charter restored. And so the Grand Lodge gave them their property back, the money back, the books, papers, all of that. So it's very important if a lodge says, oh, it's getting hard. We can't meet anymore. We can't make quorum. Uh, Bill and Charlie can't get up the stairs anymore for the meetings. And, you know, you have to contact the Grand Lodge at that point and say, hey, we are having trouble. We might be looking at giving up our charter so that the Grand Lodge can help you manage that process correctly. Now, none of us here on this podcast are in favor of lodges giving up charters, but there's a proper way to do it if it has to be done. We want to make sure that everybody out there listening is aware of that. But I think there was a good example of that happening. Uh, we've talked about it on the show before. It was in Pennsylvania, and a lodge turned in its charter, and the Grand Lodge went recruiting in that town and said, hey, we have a building, we have money, we have everything you could possibly want. Come on to an open house, learn about who the odd fellows are, join up, and we'll restart this lodge and hand everything over to you. And that's something they couldn't have done if things had been uh, thrown away prior to their involvement, and it kept odd fellows in that community. There is probably not a community in this entire area, North America, where there's been an Oddfellow Lodge and there's still people living, that there couldn't still be an Oddfellow Lodge. Just because the members who are in, they don't have any friends that want to join, they don't know anybody that wants to join, they've not been successful in reaching out, doesn't mean that there aren't potential members. And it's nice to be able to give that a try. Uh, now, that can be hard to do. A Grand Lodge doesn't really have the assets or the ability, in many cases, to hold on to a building and wait three years, or in Washington's case, five years. Uh, in that case, the building gets sold, and the money is still available should the Lodge restart, but not the building. And there are times that Grand Lodges have not done that. They have held the building, hoping to get the lodge restarted, only to have a roof leak or a water line burst, and then, you know, any value in that building is gone. So it's always a bit of a, a, a juggling thing for a Grand Lodge to figure out what's the best thing to do when a lodge closes, which is why it's better just not to close them. Yes. Now, Brother Ainsley. <clears throat> yes. I'm sure you've probably run into this a time or two because I, I know that you like to collect the odd fellows ephemera like most of us do. One or two things. <laughs> and uh, every now and then there will be a lodge that starts to have a major problem with their building. And there's a lot of lodges out there that have a little bit of reluctance over contacting the Grand Lodge because 
a lot of places are, you know, a little bit hesitant to talk to the Grand Lodge because we know that there was a a wave of thinking that went through Odd Fellowship. Uh, I know it was still very strong in my jurisdiction when I joined uh, almost 25 years ago that said, get rid of the small, weak lodges, prune the tree back so the whole tree gets stronger, and you invest in the strong lodges and help them out. Okay, so there were a lot of small lodges that said, don't tell the Grand Lodge that there's anything wrong with the building. Don't tell the Grand Lodge that there's a a leak in the roof. Don't tell the Grand Lodge that there's anything wrong because they'll come and take the charter and they'll kick us all out and we won't have a building and we won't have a lodge, etc. Okay, so one of the cautionary tales about this is what happened in Orofino, Idaho. Now, Idaho is a small jurisdiction. They're down to, I think, 15 lodges in Idaho. They've had a lot of growth. There's great stuff happening in Idaho. Uh, They're still working on getting a lodge going in Moscow, which is a good university town. Um, So who knows? Maybe by the sessions in Idaho this coming year, they'll be up to 16. But they had a lodge in Orofino. And everyone in Orofino was afraid of the Grand Lodge in Caldwell. They were afraid to tell them that the roof was leaking and the leak was getting worse because they didn't want Grand Lodge to show up and say, well, we got to shut everything down. Uh, Give me your dues cards and everybody go home. So the leak got worse and it started to rot the roof trusses. And then the roof started to uh, come apart. And eventually it got so bad that the town got involved and said, hey, you got to do something about this building. It's literally falling apart. So at that point, they finally said, okay, we'll talk to the Grand Lodge. So a delegation went up to Orofino and they said, oh, look at this building. I can literally see daylight through the roof. It is literally pulling apart at the seams. So the Grand Lodge brought in a structural engineer and said, oh, what would it take to uh, fix the roof? They said, well, you know, it's an old building. We've got to climb up two flights of stairs to get up there. Uh, It's going to be several hundred thousand dollars to fix it. And so they said, okay, well, we really can't afford to do that. What is what is our demolition cost going to be? And they said, well, that's even worse because the two buildings on the other sides of the lodge hall were built without their own exterior walls. So it's going to cost more than that to demolish the building than to fix the building. Well, the Grand Lodge of Idaho is full of good, hardworking, pure-hearted odd fellows but none of them has an extra $400,000 lying around. So unfortunately, they just had to vacate the building in Orofino and tag it and say, nope, I'm sorry, the building is condemned. Um, And this could have been fixed early on if the lodge had gone to Grand Lodge originally when it was a $10,000 problem or when it was a $20,000 problem when it wasn't a big enough problem that it became the death sentence for the lodge that it was. Yeah, and I'd like to get to Ainsley's example of a lodge that wanted to sell their building mm-hmm. and then rent somewhere else. Yeah. And that does happen. But I think what people forget is when you sell real estate, the money you get from that sale is sequestered. You cannot use it on banquets and dinners and donations to firehouses. 
it can only be used to purchase another building or for whatever your meeting costs are if you're renting somewhere. So people might think that selling the building is going to give them money to do all kinds of stuff, but it doesn't. No. That, that money mm-hmm. is sequestered. Yes, it is a strict capital fund that is very closely, well, it should be very closely guarded by the lodge and monitored by the Grand Lodge. Uh, I had a discussion one time with a past Grand Master of Nevada, and he told me that when the lodge in Las Vegas sold their building, um, which was a great building, but it was downtown in old Las Vegas on Fremont Street, and so every time there was some sort of big event in Las Vegas, they couldn't get into their lodge hall, which was a bit of a problem. And he said one of the best things that they did is they had really good guidance from the Grand Lodge at the time, and they made sure to put that money in investments so that in the future they would be able to buy another lodge hall. Well, there's been a lot of growth and development in Las Vegas. They're probably not going to be able to afford anything larger than a garden shed, but they now have essentially a capital endowment. And so if the opportunity came up, let's say hundreds of people in Las Vegas all joined Artesian Lodge 43, then they would have uh, more capability to buy a building or, um, you know, if they buy and they renovate something, they've got the money to do that because any money from the sale of a building is a restricted fund for capital expenses only. And that goes for when a lodge consolidates and you sell off the excess lodge hall. That just because it's a building that you're not meeting in doesn't mean it, it's exempt. That also goes into your capital fund. Now, and here in this lodge, when we sold the building uh, that was an excess building, we sold it to use the money to fix this building, which was a legitimate use. And so mm-hmm. th- that that was taken care of. Didn't cover the cost of the repair, though. It, it cost us more than that. But what doesn't? Yeah. And depending on your jurisdiction, there will be uh, a different procedure for approving any kind of capital expenditure. Uh, In Oregon, for example, they have Grand Lodge trustees, and they would be the ones who would meet and approve a capital expense. Here in Washington, we have what we call our Permanent Endowment Fund Committee, and they function in that role of Grand Lodge trustees Uh, managing our endowment funds, and we keep any money from defunct lodges in a special escrow account uh, for the prescribed amount of time in our Washington Digest uh, so that the money can earn interest while it's sitting there waiting to be reclaimed by the lodge. Uh, And then at the the point at which it passes – Uh, the threshold and can be added into our endowment, then we take that money and put it in the endowment and we make loans from the endowment, like the one my associate lodge is going to be hopefully getting soon uh, because we have to get some of the bricks on the backside of the building fixed up. So the money from those defunct lodges is then used to be loaned out to active lodges for capital improvements to their buildings. Is that any money from a building has strict rules that have to be followed and it has to be held for the building. Now, 
if all of that wasn't exciting enough, <laughs> just wait till we get into all the unusual circumstances that come up and we've seen come up dealing with these types of things. When we get back after the break, we're going to have some nice words from our sponsor, Heart and Hand, and then we'll be having the Lodge shout out Ooh. and then get back into the really nitty gritty of things that can go wrong dealing with your lodge assets. Oh, I, I can't imagine anything could ever go wrong dealing with lodge assets. Not in the odd fellows. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back right after this. Hello, brothers and sisters. Toby Hansen here from the Three Links Oddcast. I'm excited to tell you about a wonderful new book from the Heart in Hand Institute, The Emblems of Odd Fellowship by John Michael Greer. Brother Greer is an Odd Fellow and former member of my home lodge in Seattle. In fact, he was on my interviewing committee when I joined. He's also an acclaimed scholar and author of such books as Inside a Magical Lodge and Element Encyclopedia of Secret Societies. Brother Greer brings his considerable knowledge of esoterica and fraternalism to bear in this authoritative work about the emblems of Odd Fellowship. Richly illustrated with new renderings of the emblems by noted Odd Fellow artist Ainsley Heilich, the book represents the pinnacle of information for Oddfellows and non-members alike. Anyone with an interest in Oddfellowship would find boundless interest in this book. The release date is December 20th, so be sure and order your copy today. And don't forget a few copies for friends and family, and one for your lodge so you can share an essay on one of the emblems during Good of the Order at each meeting. The Emblems of Odd Fellowship is a book to be treasured for years to come. So order yours today. Well, welcome back to the Three Links Oddcast. Uh, we're here. We're so happy because we've got a whole bunch of lodges to shout out. One of the nice things about a two-month break from producing episodes is we got so many emails from listeners saying, hey, this lodge is starting up or this lodge is doing something great or there's a new encampment here. So tell us, Ainsley, who's getting the shout out for this episode? We had to just take out a dart and throw it at the dartboard because we had so many to pick from. So we went with uh, Prestonsburg 293 in Prestonsburg, Kentucky. And they have been very, very busy. They've been doing initiations. They've been getting new members in. They've been doing things to get out into the community. Um, and their new uh, junior past grand, uh, Darcy Owens, even came and got a tattoo from me to commemorate uh, his successful year as a noble grand and all the great things that have been happening. So, yeah, and I'm sure I'm leaving a bunch of stuff out. <laughs> Congratulations to Prestonsburg 293 in the great jurisdiction of Kentucky. Kentucky. Yes. It's kind I'm of eternal. So this is really important to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So congratulations to Prestonsburg. Yes. Well, we're talking about lodge property and the right way to deal with it. 
But Mike, you mentioned something just before the break. Um, sometimes people don't deal with lodge property correctly. I know, shocking. It's odd fellows should never do that. There should never be any impropriety about dealing with lodge funds or property, but unfortunately, it has happened. And I think the worst culprit of it is mostly done out of ignorance of the rules and a misunderstanding yes. of how things are. If you have a hall association, temple association, building association, whatever you want to call it, where you segregate out your your real estate, your building, and you have that separately incorporated or whatever you do, so that way the liability of that doesn't fall directly onto the lodge. You know, if somebody gets hit with a chunk of ice or something like that, people will set up these hall or temple associations. Those are still under the odd fellows. Those still have to report and they still fall under the same rules and you can't just do what you want. And those are more strict. Like a lodge can donate money to the the local children's library or something. The Hall Association can't. The Hall Association is to, is limited to doing the maintenance of the property. And that's what it's for. And I've, I've known examples where lodges have run all their money through the building and then gave money away, did all sorts of stuff through that because then they wouldn't have to bother with all the forms that they have to turn in for annual reports and semi-annual reports. But it doesn't work like that. You're supposed to report those too. And it's not just lodge ones. We see the same thing happen. Um, there's a lot fewer of them now, but we've seen the same thing happen with our homes that we've had, old age homes, youth homes, where the home board thinks that they're an independent entity and can do whatever the heck they want and don't go back to Grand Lodge when they're going to sell off a piece of property or if they're going to dip into their principal of their investments to do something. And then those homes get into a lot of trouble financially and the Grand Lodge is sort of stuck with something they thought would be a benefit for all their members is suddenly no longer a viable source. And we've seen that happen in multiple jurisdictions. So it's not something that's unique to any one place, but it's a mindset that's happened throughout the order, that if the money is not part of the lodge or the grand lodge in that official name, that it's part of the home board or part of the temple association or whatever you want to call it, that somehow it doesn't have to follow the rules. And that just simply is not true. Yeah. And there's a common element for all of those things that you mentioned, which is there is a board that is external to the lodge that is supposed to be managing the asset. We had this issue with our home here in Washington. Um, we had a very large home board. I think it might've had 15 people on it, which is kind of unwieldy. And for too many years, it was treated. Now I'm gonna pull back the curtain on some administration here, but home board was treated as a luxury weekend getaway three times a year for elderly odd fellows and Rebecca's. So you would get nominated for and elected to the home board if you'd been an odd fellow or a Rebecca for so long. You didn't need to have any management experience. You didn't need to understand nonprofit finance. You just needed to be old and someone who enjoyed going to Walla Walla 
three times a year at the expense of the odd fellows home and so you would drive over for the weekend and you'd spend uh the weekend in walla walla and maybe you go on a wine tasting tour or maybe you have uh dinner at the marcus whitman hotel and you turn in all of your receipts and oh your little weekend getaway three times a year is costing the home board twenty five hundred dollars for each time you go and each one of these home board members is turning in this many receipts and 15 members on the home board and they're taking their wives or their husbands with them and okay so it gets expensive and this group of people does not understand nonprofit finance so the home director comes in and says oh everything is great don't we'll take you on a tour we'll show you the new dining room we'll show you the new chairs we bought for the residents everything is fine don't you know we'll we'll send you the audit report one of these days don't worry about it it's great we love you here and there and so people who don't have any experience with nonprofit finance go in and say oh yeah i guess there's everything is fine no reason to look any further we wound up uh with a, a problem when uh i want to say frank wilson was grandmaster where the bank called the Grand Lodge and said, hey, did you know there's a financial problem with your home? And the Grand Lodge did not know because the home board was not paying attention. And nobody on the home board knew that they were supposed to be asking questions to make sure the home was complying with financial regulations. So this led to a reorganization of the home board. It was decreased in size and people got nominated to the home board who had more experience in finance. Since then, we have righted the ship and things are going uh, very well at our Odd Fellows home here in Washington. But it can happen when you get a board that doesn't have experience and is trying to run things. Well, then you, it's the same thing if you have people who go on to uh, building trustees or they go onto a home board or they go into a, a building, um, whatever you call it, association board. If they've gone on and they're just being told this is how we've always done it, and that has slowly degenerated into not being compliant, they wouldn't know any better. They wouldn't know. I would always encourage people. I know it's tedious. I know it's horrible to have to read through our governing documents. Go on to the Sovereign Grand Lodge website, get the Adobe version of the Code of General Laws, and just search for keywords. Don't read that whole stupid thing. You don't need to. But you can go look for cert certain words like property, assets, boards, and you will find in there what you need to know. Once you get an idea of what you're looking for, then you can go look in your Grand Lodge bylaws and, and look at your, your lodge bylaws and bet better understanding of what supersedes what and how these things are applied. Now, Ainsley. Yes. You started your own lodge. Yes. You bought a building and you're like, oh, let's start an odd fellows lodge. Okay. So you came into this probably not having a whole lot of experience with nonprofit finance and the way that you're supposed to do things, correct? Absolutely none. Yeah. Absolutely none. Absolutely none. You've been successful. You figured it out because after all, you're a smart guy, you're a business owner, you know, you do well in your professional life. And so it would stand to reason that you could figure out how to do all this nonprofit finance stuff. So how did you learn 
the right way to do Oddfellows finance? So I totally acknowledge that my situation is unique and a lot easier, which also kind of frees up my Oddfellow time from worrying about building matters, which, I mean, I have to worry about the building matters anyway, but they're my own worries. Um, but instead of that being the lodge's burden, it's, you know, I just could write a check and get something fixed. It's not a, you know, a big deal. So the lodge, um, the way we have it set up is the lodge is basically this little entity that exists in the building. I don't, I don't charge it rent or anything. Cause that just seems untoward. Yeah. Um, and there's what the lodge has, what the trustees go have the focus on is the physical property of the lodge, like the chairs, the, that kind of stuff, the trimmings of a lodge, the contents that make a lodge, a lodge. That is mainly what the trustees of my lodge are um, in charge of. And I have very much done a poor job of, keeping organized what I personally purchased and what was provided by the Grand Lodge. So I just made a flat blanket policy of if the lodge closes or if I pass away, first the lodge gets the contents of no matter how much I paid for or bought or whatever, that all belongs to the lodge. If I buy something, it belongs to the lodge and it'll either the Grand Lodge can come take it or the other lodges. But um, that's what I hope to get to later is what happens to that stuff. Cause we do have a policy in Illinois that does concern what happens to the goodies when the building is sold. Yeah. Now for someone who let's and say, I totally didn't answer the question cause uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry, Toby. I, totally, <laughs> I, yeah. I do this every time. I, I know, I know I do this. I'm so sorry. Well, so, you're yes. a great so how, storyteller. <laughs> I know. So how I learned to do the finances is very slowly, a little bit at a time. And even still, I know I have a less thorough knowledge than the most average member who has been in a lodge that has to, manage their own uh, lodge fund to make sure the roof isn't leaking and that sort of thing. The maintenance fund, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Now, see, in your case, the lodge that was in that building had closed quite a long time ago, well Correct. past the three-year hold limit. So there was yes. no expectation of getting stuff back from Grand Lodge. But I think you also found in researching that the property of the lodge when the lodge closed, didn't just get taken and put into storage at Grand Lodge somewhere. It, it sort of disappeared. Right. So the story of what happened to my lodge building is a very common story of the lodge closed um, in, I think, 1953. And um, come to find out, a hot newsflash, um, the newspaper across the streets, they've been scanning old photographs. And so they just did a big, you know, couple hundred photo dump. And in that couple hundred photos, there's about three or four photos of stuff happening up in the lodge hall in the late fifties. And it looked like there was a Rebecca installation. So I now know, Oh, the Rebecca's outlasted the odd fellows. So that puts the date up a couple more years. Um, but they eventually closed as well. And, um, the lodge sat just dormant. It was used basically as a party room by the um, fellow that owned the building. And uh, he passed away in the early seventies. So the lodge basically sat intact for 
20 ish years until the early seventies until some guy bought the building. He owned it for a year, had a big old auction, sold off all the, everything, everything got sold. And uh, yeah, so it was gone to the wind and I was lucky enough to find those ratty, nasty collars up in the crawl space to get me going. Cause there was, there's really very little of our history left. And um, so that's something that I'm very passionate about is trying to maintain the physical components together of a lodge, or at least keep them in the jurisdiction and make sure other, just keep it in the family. So that way it doesn't end up in the private market. And that's kind of a big, uh, I don't know, banner that I carry. It is a difficult thing to do because as the number of lodges has decreased, any given lodge only needs so many officers chairs, mm -hmm. you know, and so you end up with excess in West Virginia, a lot of excess went to our home and was stored there in empty rooms as the number of residents decreased. Um, but not everywhere has somewhere to store that much stuff. And, and even West Virginia ran out of the ability to do that. So in Illinois, we have uh, two storage units in the state um, where we could store things at. But I think at this point, it pretty much like it gets all taken care of before it even gets that far. Um, one jurisdiction I'm in contact with, they they get rid of everything. They don't keep a thing because they don't have an office even for they're like a grand lodge in a briefcase. Um, whereas a jurisdiction adjacent to them keeps everything. And they basically get a storage unit for every lodge that closes and basically closest to the next lodge to them that they um, consolidate with. So they have everything. So they can then cross jurisdiction lines, share items with other jurisdictions that need stuff. So there's this kind of a, little underground network of item sharing that is happening that really excites me um, because as lodges are coming back on the map, they need to be furnished. And if you're going to be an Oddfellows Lodge, it's really, it makes a difference if you have the real stuff, you know, if it's just folding chairs from, you know, Walmart or Amazon and it's, it's just not the same thing as sitting in, you know, some throne looking thing that is 150 years old and isn't very comfortable, but you sit nice and tall in it because you feel a little bit more important and it's throny. Um, See, that's something like even if the Grand Lodge is going to sell those things again, that's money that should go into that fund for the lodge that closed towards its total assets. So if you if you say, well, we're going to sell the building and it's full of stuff we can't take with us, we're going to sell those things mm -hmm. too, that money should be in that fund. Now, I believe you were talking uh, over the break that everyone didn't get to hear that, uh, that sometimes those funds are for more than restarting lodges. Yeah. Mm. Um, I've heard of things like that. There are definitely some... Uh, disappointing scenarios out there that I feel like maybe weren't born out of selfishness, but it kind of turned into that um, as often things do when it comes to providing oneself with money um, and, you know, hearing from certain, you know, some certain jurisdictions, there's probably several that, 
due to budgetary concerns, they cannot, you know, afford to do certain things at the Grand Lodge level. So to help um, buffer their coffers, they will then pilfer from the piggy banks of the weaker lodges and pull charters and sell properties and then take that money to then put into the the grand lodge accounts to help pay for whatever their stuff is and you know trying to trying to be super vague here so i could cover as wide of a blanket as possible so i'm not pointing out any specific jurisdiction because it isn't a specific jurisdiction. It's, it's many, many, and it's, it's unfortunate that that is almost the, um, it makes it so lodges will want to reach out for help because they feel like if they show any sign of weakness, the, that they're, it's like a shark coming in for blood. So they just keep quiet and hunker down and hope nobody notices them like a little mouse and that's that's also not a way to survive. Yeah, one would hope that a Grand Lodge that has a defunct lodge fund, after the three years or however many years mm-hmm. their jurisdiction requires, passes and a certain amount of money becomes unencumbered. It would be nice if that money could be set aside for assisting lodges that need a loan to fix a roof or to, you know, fix their furnace or whatever it is so that you don't end up having assets with no value at some point in the future. I think, unfortunately, we look at lodges and say, well, you're on your own. You know, you got to fix yourself. You got to take care of yourself. If you don't have the money, you'll have to, I guess, close up. And in the end, it hurts everybody because the Grand Lodge gets a building that doesn't have any value. Whereas if you'd invest a little bit of money into it earlier, even if that lodge closes someday, the asset has more value. And I think we need to look at our assets more from a business sense. I mean, running the, running the organization needs to be run as a fraternal organization, but managing our assets needs to be with a little bit more business thought put into it that you don't let one lodge decline to the point where their building is dilapidated before you step in and say, well, if you can't manage your building, we're going to take over your building and we're going to fix it and you're going to be our tenant or something like that. But yeah, it's a shame because that that money really isn't meant to be used. Even when it's unencumbered, you're allowed to do, I guess, whatever you want with it. But theoretically, it's not meant to be used to pay for shortfalls in issuing a, a newspaper or adding more money towards per diem of reps that come to Grand Lodge and think it's it's not really supposed to be a piggy bank that says every time a lodge closes, we all get to have an extra 10 bucks when we come to Grand Lodge. Yeah. And that's that's something important to keep in mind. Organizationally, we have to make sure that we are not setting up adverse incentives. We don't want to incentivize the behavior of closing lodges. Like one thing that I've heard uh, that happens in some lodges or some jurisdictions rather is grand officers who get a percentage of the sale of lodge property. That may be a low cost way of providing uh, the, the remuneration for doing that job because Someone has to manage the sale of lodge property when it comes up and needs to be sold. 
But if you rely on giving those officers a percentage of that money, you incentivize closing lodges, which is ultimately a very perverse incentive because eventually there will not be enough lodges left to support a grand lodge. And then they will be out of a job because they will be appended to a neighboring jurisdiction. It's like opening a real estate company almost and operating the grand lodge as like a liquidation real estate sort of short sale. I don't know what you want to call it, but because a lot of times the, the, the real estate deals aren't very beneficial. They end up being the worst kind of real estate deal. And not getting the best sale out of it. It's yeah. It's like the, the fire sale approach. Yeah. Here's a good example of that from my jurisdiction. We used to have a lodge in the town of Ilwaco, Washington, which is out on the coast. Um, it's out by long beach, uh, just across the river from Astoria, Oregon. So the very Southwest corner uh, right by Cape Disappointment, and uh, anybody who's really familiar with the West Coast will go, oh, yeah, Cape Disappointment. Um, it's not as exciting as it sounds out there. Is it? Is it disappointing? Yeah, it is. I mean, <laughs> the first time I went out there, I was like, wow, this is going to be great. And you get out there and you're like, oh, it's just a point of land sticking out in the Pacific Ocean. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, now I know, I know how it got the name, <laughs> but we had a, a lodge in town and it had been a very active lodge. There were Rebecca's there, uh, but you know, father time, everybody gets that final withdrawal card and there weren't enough members to sustain the lodge. And so the grand secretary at the time didn't want to put in too much effort. And he said, well, we'll just carry the, the sale contract at the Grand Lodge office and you can pay, I forget what it was, something very small, three, four hundred bucks a month for 15 years until you've paid off your your loan on the lodge hall and we will own the build or you will own the building at that point. OK, so this is a terrible way to do business. But for a grand secretary who's not motivated to do his or her job. This is a great way of getting out of having to do too much work. So, uh, of course, the new the buyer um, defaulted on the loan after something like two and a half years, maybe. And our new grand secretary, the wonderful Laurel Deloney, had to go out there and figure out what the heck was going on. So she went out there. And the owner of the building now, this was a, a building on the coast in a fishing town, basically. So very rough lumber, you know, clabbered siding, um, you know, not the fanciest Oddfellows Hall you've ever seen. The guy who was buying it couldn't even be bothered to put in proper plumbing. So instead of hooking up the new downstairs toilet to the sewer system in town, to the existing sewer line that went into the building. He literally cut a hole in the floor of the building and just let the toilet flush onto the ground underneath the building. Not even into a cesspit. Not, I mean, this is like the most redneck backwoods 
kind of operation. And he had set it up for uh, a marijuana grow operation because this was the time when it had been legalized in Washington. And he was getting in on that right away. And so he, he set up this grow operation. And after having defaulted on the payments, we had to do all the legal work to get this back. Well, Laurel went down there with a couple of assistants and contacted the Pacific County Sheriff who went out and sent a deputy out to investigate all of this stuff and found all kinds of exciting things inside of the building. And at that point, Laurel just asked around town and said, hey, is there anyone who wants to buy this building and take on any remaining liability that may come from the previous owner? She ended up selling it for something like $20,000 because it had been so messed up by this guy who was paying on it and defaulted on the contract. You know, this is why we have the oversight of trustees, uh, of a board of directors, uh, or of, in our case in Washington, the Permanent Endowment Fund, uh, who basically was not doing their oversight in that case and let the Grand Secretary at that time write a contract to sell the building. And it ended up being a complete and total mess. It was awful. I'm still hung up on the toilet straight pipe down into the cross. Yes. <laughs> These things happen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not even going to make a West Virginia joke there because <laughs> there are a lot of smart people in West Virginia who know how to do plumbing properly. Oh, no. We have everywhere. Ours is plumbed properly, even the camp. Or, or at least dig a proper depth latrine for an outhouse. <laughs> yeah, well, you should at least put a collection tank. Yes. Um, but, I mean, it's not always the sales that go wrong. Sometimes well-meaning rentals go wrong, too. And, you know, there's a couple instances where rental agreements can be a problem. For example, if you have renters and they want to own part of your property, let's say they, you know, almost like a condo, or if they want to own the building or something, and, and you have a rent-to-own agreement, that's basically a sales agreement, and you need the Grand Lodge permission for that. So do keep that in mind. Don't don't sign an agreement where somebody can rent to own the first floor of your building. And you think, well, that's just great. Then we're going to have them. They're going to have their own heating system. They're going to have their own everything. It's going to be separate from us. It's going to cut our bills down. And we're getting all this money. And we're not going to worry about when all of a sudden we stop getting the money from them because they've, they've reached the own period. Because the Grand Lodge needs to be involved with that. Um, and then the other thing you need to worry about is if you have a building and you decide to use um, a property management company to maybe take care of that for you, you need to run that through your Grand Lodge because the contract may obligate you to spend money to replace things or to do certain maintenance on things or to do upgrades or remodels or whatever it is those kind of contracts can be full of those where their maintenance people are under contract and they show up and say, well, we, that toilet was a little bit wobbly, so we just replaced the entire floor and put in a new toilet and all that, and here's the bill. And that could be allowed under that contract. So you have to be careful um, when you're using any sort of uh, contract labor 
in that sort of circumstance that you it, you want to treat it as if you were doing the work yourself and you're going to be dipping into your capital funds because that could happen to you. And that's not something people are thinking of when they're thinking, well, there's only a few of us old guys and we're not really able to do this work. And we've got rental income, so we've got enough money coming in. Let's go ahead and you know, get this building management company to come in. They'll take care of custodial. They'll take care of shoveling the sidewalks. They'll take care of doing the repairs. That all sounds well and good and is only a certain fee until they send you the bill for the things they felt like your old building needed to have. Oh, well, you weren't handicap accessible in your bathroom, so now all of a sudden we paid to do all of that. Here's your bill. You know, those are all wonderful things, but a lodge needs to be prepared for that. And they should run it through their Grand Lodge before they sign any sort of contract that gives uh, expenditure authority to a third party is the best way to put it. Yeah. That's also reminded me of another scenario of a lodge that had brokered a deal. I think this was like a couple, maybe like 20 years ago or so with a cell tower to be installed on the building. And instead of doing the monthly payment system that you get that recurring income in perpetuity, they decided to just do a lump sum one-time payout for considerably less. And that money, you know, was gone very quickly. And here they are, you know, a couple decades later, and they have this thing on their building and they need a new roof. That's going to be several six figure hundred thousands of dollars. And now they're like, what do we do? Do we sell the building? Do we, what do we do? So it's, it gets these very difficult conundrums because the tower company has no incentive to even communicate with you anymore because they already paid you and they're getting what they want and they have whatever weird little legalese easement of the rooftop section. And so it can create messes if you don't have somebody with maybe hopefully a better trained set of eyes at the Grand Lodge to review some of these deals or a bad tenant agreement where, you know, a lot of there's, you know, been a situation in Illinois where bad tenant agreements happened where the tenant put stuff in there saying that the lodge had to fix their repairs and it was bankrupting the lodge and the Grand Lodge had to intervene and get that sorted out. So there's a lot of things that can really negatively impact your property. Yeah. I really that, hadn't even thought about that, that, you know, a cell phone tower or, you know, having, mm -hmm. having a renter as a, in your building that, you know, makes changes to the building that maybe they paid for, but the net effect of those changes is that it's done something that's going to change the value of the building. Yes. And those are all things that you really should contact the Grand Lodge. Your Grand Lodge may not have any idea any better about it than you do. But the Grand Lodge should have an attorney and be able to send those things on to the Grand Lodge attorney if the officers who happen to be on the executive board at the moment don't have any idea any more than you do when you sent it to them. That's why we have a Grand Lodge attorney that we can send things to because he's supposed to know, or she, whoever it is at the time. Yes, uh, I can say that our Grand Lodge here in Washington has an excellent attorney. Uh, she's the one who is able to sort out the issue with um, 
the lodge I mentioned where they had defaulted on a loan from their cemetery committee and they were able to get everything cleared up with the title to the lodge hall and return everything back to uh, good legal operation. Now, sometimes, I know this is the exception to the rule, but sometimes you do have Grand Lodge officers who are unaware of exactly how these things are supposed to work. They'll say, oh yeah, go ahead and sell your building, it's fine, and not realize they're giving out bad advice. Now that's something that is much harder to deal with because if you are in a lodge in one of those jurisdictions and you happen to talk to your grand master or your grand secretary and say, hey, um, I need to know what our lodge should do about this building situation. The grand master may be a very kindly 85 year old woman who just says, oh, well, if you think it'll make everyone happy, go ahead and sell your building. And so it's really important to make sure that when you ask a question like that of your Grand Lodge, that whoever is giving you the answer can give you some background information, can say something like, if you look in Chapter 5 of the code, it says this. And it says, okay, this is all Lodge properties are held in trust for the Lodge, etc., you know, any information that comes from your Grand Lodge should have a code citation, hopefully both of the Sovereign Grand Lodge code and of your jurisdictional digest, constitution, bylaws, etc. cetera. Uh, because it does happen sometimes, uh, like the example I gave earlier of our previous Grand Secretary who, who just didn't want to be bothered with getting a real estate agent and selling the building properly and was willing to carry the contract. That's the kind of thing where you should make sure that the Grand Lodge officer can give you a code citation and say, the code says this is the proper way to do it, so this is what you should do. And not every jurisdiction is lucky enough to have a uh, real estate broker as their Grand Secretary like we have in Illinois, who is immediately able to not only quote the code, but also quote the state law yeah. on such matters. Well, and here in Washington, we did something very smart about, uh, I guess it was 20 years ago. We had uh, one of our past grandmasters lead a property committee and research the titles of all of the property that was still owned by all of the Oddfellow and Rebecca Lodges in the state. Because there have been many examples where the Odd Fellows Lodge will give up its charter either through consolidation or what have you, but the Rebecca Lodge keeps their charter. And so the reversionary rights to the building gets clouded because the, technically the Grand Lodge should own the building and it should be titled in the name of the Grand Lodge. But sometimes there's some sneaky things that happen where all of a sudden, oh, there was a quit claim deed. Now the Rebecca Lodge owns the building. Surprise! Yeah, those things do happen. And most of the time, it's ignorance. Sometimes there can be malice. And I hate to say it, but this is where having active district deputies who are regularly in touch with their lodges goes a long way to help prevent that. 
when I was grandmaster and I found out about the lodge that wanted to give away all their money and then close, I found out because the district deputy had gone to meet them and talked to them and found out they were having an issue. And so I was able to then go in as grandmaster and say, hey, let's not do this. This is what it says in the code. This is how we need to proceed with this process. They were very upset with me. You know, I had one member tear up her dues card and walk out of the meeting because I wouldn't let them violate the code and give their money away before they turned in their charter. But I said, no, once you have raised the issue of giving up your charter, you have to safeguard those funds and property of the lodge. It has to be held in trust to be turned over to the Grand Lodge. We've we've had incidents where um, the Grand Lodge has actually had to go to the bank and freeze the assets mm -hmm. of that lodge so they could beat the lodge to the bank who them trying to withdraw said funds. Yeah. So yeah, it, 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 you definitely have to, I guess, have a lot of I'm trying to think of the testicular fortitude yes. to do some of these um, interactions at the grand lodge level that, that like those stories are what give me like the like the icky icky panics that I'm like oh I am not ready for that prime time because I, I I am not knowledgeable enough or confident enough to go up against a lodge having an issue like that and to be able to competently manage that I mean obviously there's a whole army of helpful members of course but at the same time you, you don't want to kind of be up there stammering like i am right now i'm just getting nervous <laughs> thinking about it <laughs> it's charming in a podcast but when you're addressing a lodge and a bunch of people are angry at you because you're saying it's no horrible. you can't do that yeah that's that's where you <laughs> sometimes as grandmaster you have to be the bad guy because a yeah. grandmaster is the chief code enforcement officer of the jurisdiction Grandmaster has to be the one who does his or her best job to ensure that the rights of all members are protected by applying the code evenly and fairly. Now, we do get a certain amount of judgment call. This is why it says laws are to be liberally construed. It doesn't mean you suspend the laws and say, well, for the good of odd fellowship, we're just not going to enforce the laws. No, it means you take into account the circumstances around why you need to apply a particular law of odd fellowship. You don't suspend it. You say, okay, they were trying really hard to do the right thing here. So I'm going to find an outcome that is going to allow the lodge to continue doing uh, their best work of odd fellowship, as opposed to just indiscriminately punishing. So you have to be prepared to do that. Yeah. I was very fortunate during my term as grandmaster, I did not have to uh, punish or reprimand anyone for what they did. Everyone played nice for my year. <laughs> Watch me be one of those charter pulling angry ah! grandmasters. You make me mad. I'll pull your charter. <laughs> I, I think what I would give as a summary to this whole topic is that you need to think of the Odd Fellows as an organization that existed before you and will exist after you. And that's the way we should be looking at the assets of Odd Fellowship. I didn't build the building. 
I didn't charter the lodge. Now, in some cases, maybe some people did, and some of the newer lodges, but in general, for most of us, we didn't make this. We came into it. We we're stewards of it. And then whether it goes on as the current lodge after us, or if it consolidates or turns into this charter while we're a member, the money still should move on with the organization to continue to benefit what the organization is trying to do. Because the people who raised it, the people who put it together, were doing it for the odd fellows. Back when they did a lot of these things, those people probably belonged to 15 different other organizations, and they chose to put their money into odd fellowship and to build up odd fellowship. If they'd wanted that money given to the you know, left-handed dog walkers club, they'd have done that back at the time. So I know people think, well, you know, the money maybe should stay in our community. We want to give it away. That's that's not what it was ever intended for. And also, I always say this, I'm going to say it again until people finally listen. We are not a charity. We are a mutual benefit society. The money raised by the odd fellows is supposed to benefit the odd fellows. We do nice works in the community. That's a wonderful thing. And we do that. But that is not the purpose of our organization. And that's why the capital assets are supposed to continue on with the organization and not go somewhere else. Because it's just like if a church closes, the money doesn't just dump out into the neighborhood that goes on up to the rest of the network of churches, however it happens to be organized for that particular religion. That's how we do, because the, the point of it is to do the works of the organization and not necessarily to benefit just one particular group of people. That's absolutely right. You you are absolutely correct. I like your church analogy. Now, myself, as a Lutheran, um, it goes to our casserole fund. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, everything in life is better mixed with cream of mushroom soup and topped with tater tots. <laughs> tots make everything better. Yes, Especially they do. Cod. Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, um, March is just around the corner, and... Uh, I think most of our listeners probably recall that I also belong to Sons of Norway and the Torsk Supper is coming up. I love that. Boiled codfish and boiled potatoes. Yum, yum, yum. Ooh, delicious. Uh And Mike, you're shaking your head there. Well, I'm not much of a seafood person. Um, I I have the the refined palate of a toddler. So you're I going want to my talks. breakfast foods. I want my cakes and cookies. Yes. I want some pizza. <laughs> well, I feel like this was a very like wide breadth of an episode for something that seemed like a very narrow topic. Yeah. Well, I think it is because this is something that the average member never has to think about. Until it's too late. If your lodge is not closing, if your lodge is not having some major thing where you're dipping into your investments to pay for it, you never have to deal with this issue. But unfortunately, those that do need to know that this exists and there are rules about it because they can get themselves into a lot of trouble and could be found personally liable for any lost money. And you don't want to have that land on you. You don't want them coming after you. I will say that uh, I am familiar recently with a federal prosecution of a former member who is former because of what was done, 
where, you know, money wasn't handled appropriately. And that's what can happen. I don't, no one wants to come after and cause a problem, but if you do something and and you have an $80,000 building and you sell it to a friend of yours for $20,000 and, and you walk away, the Grand Lodge isn't going to just say, well, so much for for the other $60,000. They're going to come to you because you did it. And so you need to just be careful. Check yeah. with the Grand Lodge before you do stuff. That anything, that, anything that you're concerned about or confused about, contact the Grand Lodge. Absolutely. Now, Ainsley, where did we get the idea for this episode? It came via email. So yeah. We, what, they didn't write it, an actual letter and put it in the mail with a stamp? It came from Telegraph. Um, <laughs> we decoded the cipher with our... <laughs> well, we were As a grand secretary, decoding... I'm sorry. I have to have all of it in triplicate on no, paper. No. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, haven't you heard, though? The future of Odd Fellowship is carbon forms. It is. Yes, I know. It is, yes. So if um, you have a large shout out or if you have any questions or any episodes or suggestions or if you want to appear as a guest, uh, please give us a email at the numeral three links oddcast at gmail.com or you can hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, on the uh, Discord server or anywhere else you find us on the internet. That's right. And I would encourage you when you're looking for suggestions, I would encourage you, because this this is actually a lot of fun in a weird, nerdy, kind of wonk fun. Open up your code of general laws or the PDF version. And if you could find in there and send to us the strangest things that you've read in code, the things that you had no idea were in there, and wonder why they're in there. Hmm. I would love to hear that from you because there are a lot of strange things in there buried in different parts that people don't even know are in there until you go reading through the whole darn thing. Are there any vestigial code artifacts from the past? Like, uh... Well, there, there are some <laughs> things that when the code was reorganized, some things that used to be general appear now only under one of the bodies which just Mm. makes them unusual. Mm -hmm. Like, Why would there be a rule for one body when it's not a rule for another body? It's very strange. I've got an example. Happened during the code when they, when they, you know, consolidated sections of code, some things just didn't make it everywhere. So So here's, I'm telling you that there's fun things in the code that you won't realize are in there. And to please go look. It's like a treasure hunt. Send them back. (laughs) Here's an example of one of those things. So if you read through, um, I forget which chapter it is. Maybe it's chapter seven of the code, but it's the one about the grand encampment. You'll see that it says, oh, you can't have a meeting on the Sabbath. But that's the only unit for which I have found that prohibition. So a lodge could have a meeting on the Sabbath. And of course, that begs the question, whose Sabbath are we not allowed to meet on? Are we, we actually not just meeting took on that from Friday? our code because that was the determination. Which Sabbath are we talking about? Yeah. yeah. You know, is it Friday night that we don't meet? Is it Saturday that we don't meet? Is it Sunday that we don't meet? You know, that's a, a very valid question when it says something like you cannot meet on the Sabbath. But that's a whole topic for a, another episode. In fact, but, just, but that's what I'm saying. 
if if the if the listeners want to go through and if you can find things that maybe we haven't found or that you think other people would find interesting, go ahead. It's an Easter egg hunt. Find the Easter eggs in the code and shout them out to us. And maybe we'll do a whole episode of funny things we found in the code, almost like how you're not allowed to buy sewing needles in New Jersey or or certain things like that. Yeah. <laughs> leftover stuff. That's right. So now on to the odd podge. Uh, I'm going to go first. Um, it is the year 2024. And my first year of doing lodge installations here in the jurisdiction of Washington was 2004, 20 years ago. Well, that was when I was first installed as a grand musician, actually in June of 2003. And I served in that capacity until I was elected grand warden. And then I went through the chairs of the Grand Lodge. And then as soon as I became a past grandmaster, it was back to the piano bench for me because we don't have a whole lot of musicians left in the world of Odd Fellowship. Well, this year, for the first year in 20 years, I only participated in the installation of officers for my own lodge because we have another grand musician in this jurisdiction who is not me. And what? it was so much fun to <laughs> actually start the installation at the podium because I'm now past Noble Grand of my Rebecca Lodge. It's my first time serving as Noble Grand of my Rebecca Lodge. And I was actually able to not be part of the installing team for the first time in 20 years, which was pretty amazing. Uh, and a very exciting new experience for me in Odd Fellowship. Because after you've been in as long as I have, there aren't a whole lot of new experiences, but sitting up in the front and just being the Noble Grand and then being escorted over to the past Grand Station and to put on the past Noble Grand's regalia and then sit there and not have to do anything else was pretty sweet. So that's my Odd Podge <laughs> for this episode. Just not having to be the installing musician or grandmaster. Now, who's next? You got something, Ainsley? I, I think we all know what this one's be. So, all right, um, let's hear it. So I did a thing the other day, very spur of the moment, which is probably the best way to do things. So um, <laughs> aside from a normal, very well-planned uh, uh, approach. So um, for a long time, I've been planning on whenever I hit uh, my 10 years of odd fellowship, I was going to get a heart tattooed into the palm of my hand. So that way, everywhere I went and everybody I shook hands with, I had my heart in hand. So I'm trying to get my little hand in the shot here. It's hard to show the people at home. will have to just go onto the vintage karma <laughs> page and look at my squinching face of pain while I was doing it. Um, so I was kind of straddling my, cause I don't have like an exact join date cause I didn't pay good, good attention. But when on the annual report, when you get the SGL member roster in, I think my, I was entered into the system on like August 1st, 2013 or something. So that obviously 10 year mark had come and passed, but I kind of consider my real join date whenever I was initiated, which is, would be the 10 years that that would be this coming, uh, uh, March. So I kind of straddled in between the two and just was feeling froggy that day. And we had time and did the thing and it was horrible, but I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. So yeah, uh, there it is. Woo. <laughs> now when are you going to get it filled in? 
that uh, I, I, 25 probably, years right exactly i'm just like oh after this i was just like i, I would like it to be red but maybe i'll just use a sharpie i, I yeah uh <laughs> yeah or one, one dot at a time <laughs> How long will that last? I thought that palm tattoos have a difficulty. If you could get it through the heel, you're good. So um, I feel like there might be like one or two spots that might be the fallout spots, but I am wearing um, that like second skin Saniderm over it the whole time for the heel. So that way it's like completely safe and to try to give it the best chance of healing and it really doesn't hurt at all now i mean like it's like a like one little spot's a little tender bruisey feeling but like yeah with this over it it feels yeah because I, I, I thought it would feel like the worst paper cuts afterwards but no so yeah i i think uh now i match uh past grandmaster eric smith that i tattooed one in his palm so mm. and i know there's a couple uh walks at hatchy 80 uh brothers with them so now <laughs> you know how club. it feels yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> it's yeah. horrible. <laughs> I think you need one, Mike. No, I, I could use another odd fellow tattoo because I only have a, a composite tattoo that has the lakes in it, has other fraternal symbols in there as well. And it, well, it, it includes it includes odd fellows, Boy Scouts, Masons. It has a whole bunch <laughs> of stuff in there. It was the first tattoo I ever got, and I just piled it all into one. Ah, yes, the one tattoo to rule them all. <laughs> yeah, I didn't anticipate being, you know, up to as many as I have, um, which is too many, maybe, but not enough at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I would like to get another Oddfellow one. Uh, I just have a lot of difficulty coming up with what I want. Every one of my tattoos is unique. I think and- they just they just boom. Like, I think the best ideas yeah. are the ones that just kind of hit well, you and you're like, that's it. But I haven't had one that's done that yet. Yeah. Everyone that come up with that go, eh, eh. And I just can't quite get there, which is why I just haven't gotten it done. Because yeah. it has to be something that's unique mm-hmm. to me and not uh, something anybody else has. I don't think there's anybody else out there with a grand secretary tattoo. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm going to have one of those either. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. That is, that, is a, that is something that you do that you can marked down as a having done but not mm-hmm. necessarily something you remember on your skin as uh accomplishment those, that you want to yeah, like, like I, I had like tattoos for my kids and for like different continents that i've visited so you're saying it's like not up there with like getting like eagle scout no i well I'm, i it would be like me tattooing my my other main job on there. Like, yes, I'm a GIS <laughs> manager and like tattooing a little globe on a computer screen. And, <laughs> you know, I just don't think so. Uh, I love the order, but, but the work of the order is the work of the order. And it's separate from the, yeah. the, the order. The administrative arm of the odd yeah, fellows. Yeah. So if you're not getting a grand secretary tattoo, Mike, uh, what's your odd podge for this episode? You know, Guys, I don't have one. I know that sounds pretty lame, but uh, all I've done is work. And uh, that's it. I haven't done anything else. I understand. I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't done a thing. I haven't even done my laundry yet. That means there just hasn't been anything going on. <laughs> ah, that's um, what I got to do after this. <laughs> I will say, 
I guess I can make an odd podge out of it just for the heck of it. Um, trying to find something to do with my hands while I have a break for like 30 minutes to watch something on Netflix or whatever. I did uh, pick up crochet. Nice. Okay. Because it's easy. And it's something for me to do temporarily. I'm not really enjoying it. So I don't think it's gonna be something I'll be, I continue to do. I'll give it some more time, but it's it's I was hoping it would be a relaxing something other than playing on my phone. You know, because normally I would play puzzle games or so while I'm trying to just clear my mind from the day and just do something else. And uh I thought, well, this might be nice. I used to like leather work and wood carving and all these other things that are messier. Why don't I just try this? It, it I can do this in one spot and it's not going to be messy. And it, it's just not that much fun. Uh, yeah. I feel like unless you're just kind of like mindlessly chain stitching and then when you get done, you just, and then you just chain stitch it over again and just, you know, cause you don't really got to think to do a chain stitch, but you know, when well, you're doing the brandy, I, I st- have to apparently. <laughs> like I, I, I can't get past the, the granny square because I would always like somehow like drop a stitch somewhere. Well, I think that's a knitting term, but like I miscount my stitches and my granny squares would always be like triangles. <laughs> it's horrible. Oh wow, you made a parallelogram. Yes, that's a, I, I was not a good crocheter. Yeah, it's I, a granny run. I missed a few stitches, and I'm not. <laughs> Not, it's, I'm not showing off my handiwork. I am not making anybody custom Oddfellow scarves anytime soon. <laughs> that is that is not happening. But that is the closest thing that I've done to an odd podge was was fail miserably at crochet recently. So by August, I expect you to have figured out how to crochet an Oddfellow collar with like yarn tassels <laughs> on it and like little like those little uh, florets. Uh, I'm still working on a straight line. Yeah. (laughs) All right. We've successfully turned this into yarn talk, uh, the podcast for stitchers and hookers everywhere. (laughs) You you have to to understand the breadth of Odd Fellowship. The same people who are covered in tattoos are also doing crochet. Yes. Because that is really the essence of Odd Fellowship right there, that you are not in a pigeonhole. I mean, you do anything. And I I can actually say that I have neither crocheted nor have any tattoos. But you play an accordion. Well, I do play an accordion. No, I mean, that's already like as hardcore as they come. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I, I think I have something like 12 accordions in the house right now. So I'm well stocked for that. That's strange because I thought that Dante had fewer levels of hell than that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on now. It's not like I'm a bagpiper or anything like that. (laughs) I like the bagpipes. So so what we need is Toby, Kelly Hughes, and uh, Jim Turner with his banjo. Yes. With his bagpipes. And you could do like the Oddfellows trio of like forbidden instruments. <laughs> and play Amazing Grace. Yeah, oh, that's right. Obviously. Of course. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening to this episode. We've not scheduled the next episode yet. We're still working on getting that scheduled. So we will uh, let you know once we get that next episode done. But for now, I want to thank everyone for listening. Bye-bye, everybody.